Good morning. I'm Ken Helton. I'm one of the elders here. I'm going to put the speculation to rest. I am the eldest of the elders, if any of y'all are wondering about that. But um, last week, uh, we, we lost a lot of uh, uh, the elder team with uh, the flu or colds or something. But um, I'm glad to see you all out. Everybody's well and healthy, and I'm glad you're here. Was that a magnificent worship service or what? Um, those hymns are just chocked full of theology about who we worship and what is coming in the future. <clears throat> this morning, as Christy said, we're going to talk about the Prince of Peace. Uh, the fourth um, title in that passage that we've been studying from Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 7. So this morning, I want you to, I'm going to start with <clears throat> something that has a little less to do. She talked about the Christmas season being crazy. The whole world is crazy right now. We need uh, the Prince of Peace to come. Uh, we're inundated with bad news. If you uh, look, you'll see that uh, you, re you read your papers and there's conflicts going on. You open the television, there's conflicts going on. Conflicts between nations, conflicts between different races within the nation, conflicts within our government system uh, so that they can't agree on anything. Conflicts, they're conflicts within families. Conflicts between spouses, conflicts between parents and children. Everyone is looking for peace. You may be here this morning. You may be aware, acutely aware of some of those conflicts in your life. There's good news. There are other things that cause conflicts. Uh, a spiritual crisis. We are told that we may be facing uh, an economic uh, crisis with a recession that could be severe. With a number of people laid off, if you haven't lost a job, you may. People are worried about their jobs, their sources of income. Stress in our family relationships is related sometimes to the financial stress we're under. And then there's medical issues. That biopsy report that was sent off and it did not return with good news. That creates stress. And then there's the unending source of physical pain that won't go away and there's no medical solution for it. Um, and then there's the pain that we feel for our unsaved loved ones and we hurt for them. Even the holidays, as Miss Christie said, can bring stress and the loss of peace if we lose our focus on the Prince of Peace. Matthew chapter 24 is the great Olivetan Discourse. It's Jesus' own words uh, about the end times. It's probably done on Wednesday afternoon of Passion Week and he's coming out of the temple with uh, the rest of the disciples and they're they say, look at Master, and they look at this magnificent temple, probably one of the eighth wonders of the world. And uh, then they ask him, sitting on the Mount of Olives, and they're looking down at the city, uh, when are you going to return, and what are the signs of your return? And so he answers that. But first, he answers something they didn't ask him. He tells, he gives them a statement. He said, not one stone will be left on top of another in that temple. Uh, I think he did that so that everyone would know, it would emphasize that everything that Jesus says will come to pass. It will happen. In 70 AD, Rome sacked the temple. 
They sacked the city. They killed 1.1 million Jews. They crucified 30,000. They took the women and children and sold them into slavery, into the circus. And 10 years later, Domitian, the son of Titus, who did that, erected an arch of triumph in Rome, and it's still there today. You can see them carrying off the uh, temples of the menorahs and everything, the treasures from the temple in Rome. And he declared that we have we've taken care of the Jewish problem. They're done. And for 2,000 years, they didn't have a home. Does that sound, sound familiar maybe in the 30s and 40s when another tyrant decided to take care of the Jewish problem the same way? Yeah, history repeats itself. Satan is still in control. Uh, but Jesus is telling them uh, in chapter 24 what's coming. And in chapter 25, he gives some parables about how we should live until he returns. We're going to look at short some of these passages. Matthew 24, 6 through 8. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. He said, don't be alarmed. If you're alarmed, do you have peace? No. He said, don't focus on the problem. It'll steal your peace. Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these will be the beginning of birth pangs. And we've seen this, this past few years that calamity occurs globally. And it's coming in greater intensity every time. And just like birth pangs. Uh, the intensity of a woman's pain increases as she gears nearer to giving birth, and the frequency between those intervals shortens. <clears throat> That's what's happening now. Calamities are coming with greater intensity, and the interval between them is shorter. I think Jesus is saying, nobody knows the day or the hour, but be aware of what's happening. Be prepared. Everyone is seeking peace. Our passage today from Isaiah uh, tells us that the time is coming when the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, will come. One of the roles of the prophet is foretelling the future. So the prophet Isaiah is like all of the prophets. 25% of the Bible was prophetic at the time it was written. It was future events, things that would occur in the future. No other piece of literature is like that. It's unique. Uh, God wanted us to know when he made a promise that he will keep it. Uh, and there are over 300 prophecies about the first coming of Jesus Christ, and every one was fulfilled literally, absolutely literally. So we can expect there are 400 prophecies uh, about his second coming. We can expect them to be fulfilled literally. <clears throat> I mean, how did Jesus control that they would the soldiers would gamble for his garment at the foot of his cross, that he would be pierced with a sword and with a spear. Uh, all of that was prophesied. Literally everything happened. Um, prophecy we look at today was written by Isaiah 600 years before the birth of Christ. That was 2,000 years. It's 2,600 years ago this prophecy was written. It is a prophecy concerning Jesus the coming and the coming messianic kingdom. History is his story. It's God's story. Prophecy in the Bible validates the authenticity that, his, that it is his word, the word of God, 
when, when you see and read prophecy and it comes true, that's a punctuation mark that my word will not fail. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or tittle of my word. History is linear. It has a definite goal. And God will sovereignly move all things to the con con consummation of his plan in the messianic kingdom. He is in control. He has not lost his control. He is not unaware of what's going on. He's fully aware. And, and that's one of the reasons Jesus warned us what was coming. He is in control. His name will be honored and his voice obeyed by all people on the earth during the coming millennial rule of Christ. Acts 10 says, all of the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That is good news. That is the good news of the, good news of the Christmas story. Uh, all of the prophets, the Old Testament, uh, in Luke chapter 24, you see Jesus on the day of his resurrection speaking uh, to the two men on the uh, Emmaus Road. He takes the law and the prophets and he teaches them how the word of God reveals him from Genesis through Revelation. The, the book is all about him. And we need to know it because that's the way we know him. How can you fall in love with somebody if you don't know all about them? We need to know him. The primary text that we have used for the first four weeks of the Advent season, we're going to look at briefly today. It's been covered well by uh, Michael and, and Wayne, and uh, we want to look at the, sort of get the feel. We talked about it in our, in our uh, hymns today, the great hymns. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Believe me, Israel was a dark land when Isaiah wrote this. The, men, the people had turned from the true God and were into idolatry. Uh, they were into all sorts of uh, false religion. And they had defaced the image of God for the nation of Israel. And they were walking in darkness. Isaiah is warning them. Something's coming. Judgment is coming. But Isaiah also gives hope. He, God always gives us hope. And so you see that uh, in a dark land, and I believe we live in a dark land, every time I see the news and I see what's going on and what's being elevated with um, drag shows in, in, in elementary schools, and uh, I know we live in a dark land, uh, and, but there's a light coming. And you'll find that light in your word. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase <clears throat> their gladness. Who is the you? It's the coming Prince of Peace. It's Jesus. And he's going to multiply the nation. When they came back <clears throat> into the land, there were only a tiny uh, group of people that came back after the turn of the century and, and uh, started to re-occupy uh, the land. Uh, there was only a tiny group that had returned from the dispersion. But you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Is Israel embracing their Messiah now? Are they glad for him? No. 
that's a future date. That's coming. The remnant will always embrace him. The true believers will always look at the word and embrace it as the truth. But the vast majority of the world and the vast majority of, of the Jewish nation doesn't know that. But they will. Verse 4 and 5 says, You shall break the yoke uh, of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, as the battle as in the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle turmoil, and a cloak rolled in blood will be for burning and the fuel for the fire. I personally believe this alludes to the great battle of Armageddon before Jesus returns, that he will crush his enemies. Uh, all of those that have shaken their fists at him over the years and have, and have encircled the, the uh, nation of Israel to stamp it out under the power of the Antichrist, I believe they will all be put down by the King of Kings and Lord of Glory when he returns. And uh, it'll be a great victory. Everyone, including one-third of the Jewish nation that is still alive, will trust him as their Lord and Savior. Isaiah 9 is where we are. For a child will be born to us. Hallelujah. We sang about that this morning. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. He's coming to reign and to rule, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, one with all of the wisdom. He's totally omniscient. He knows everything that's going on. His wisdom is perfect. He will lead with wisdom. He'll be Almighty God. He's omnipotent. He has the power to carry out his will. He knows what's best. His will is that that best is applied, and he has the power to take it apart, uh, to make it happen. And he's the eternal father. What a great term, a familiar term, a family term, a loving God who is not transcendent out there somewhere, and we know about him, but we can't touch him. He's described it as our father. So you see, he moved us from the kingdom of darkness when we trusted him as our savior to the kingdom of light, but he didn't leave us there. He didn't leave us as citizens in the kingdoms. He drew us in and he adopted us. He not only forgave us, but he adopted us into his family so that we have an inheritance. Our inheritance we talked about this morning is living with him forever in a renewed kingdom. You see, and then he adopted us as sons, made us joint heirs with Christ. There's no better story than the gospel story. There's no God like our God. He is wonderful. And he's the prince of peace. He's going to bring peace to the world. Isaiah 9, 7 says, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. No end. It will increase and it will permeate everywhere in the renewed, restored kingdom. On the throne of David, this is important, David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever. How long is forever? Yeah, it's forever. This is an unending kingdom. It's unending. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. Now, why does he mention David? We talked about the prince of peace. He has a royal lineage even here on earth. If you look at the Gospels of both Matthew and Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew and Luke, there's, a, there's a, a genealogy in the beginning of both of those Gospels. 
specifically to tie both Mary and Joseph to the lineage of David. You see, David uh, was the king that God made a promise to. The Davidic covenant, it's called. In Samuel, 2 Samuel 7, uh, this promise was made to David. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Do you notice something about that word forever? God keeps putting it in his scripture, doesn't he? He keeps going over it. You see, we worship a God that we're going to have a relationship with for eternity, forever. The news doesn't get any better. The title, Prince of Peace, Prince is one of the one who sovereignly rules. It means the sovereign ruler will be the one who ensures the blessing of peace for his people. It will be guaranteed by our sovereign ruler. Jesus is the ruler who brings peace. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, and will make everything new. Let's look at Romans. Now Romans is written to assure us of where we stand as a member of the family of God, as an adopted son who's been purchased. For the anxious longing of the creation awaits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. We sang about that this morning. The creation is groaning. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see in the Garden of Eden, chapter 3, when men fell and sinned and rebelled against God and said, we're going to do our own thing. Michael likes to say the fall, that was the fall, and the fall was great. It not only affected man, but it affected everything in the creation. God is going to renew and restore it all. It's going to be re returned to the, to the uh, position of perfection that it had in the Garden of Eden. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth. There's that word again, childbirth, which means it's coming in waves, shorter interval, greater intensity, together until now. Hmm, I wonder if they knew something about the climate. Uh, you see, the whole creation is groaning, waiting to be relieved uh, and to when the Prince of Peace comes. The Hebrew concept of peace is more than an absence of war. Isaiah, to Isaiah, peace is a condition in which all things follow their destiny undisturbed, follow the plan of God toward what he has planned. And listen at this restored earth. This is in Isaiah, and you know, repeated in uh, uh, a number of places in the Old Testament, but carried out in the book of Revelation. The wolf will lie with the lamb, and the leopard lie down with the goat, and the calf and the lion and the yearling uh, together, and a little child will lead them. I mean, those are natural enemies in our world today. Carnivorous animals devour lambs. Um, but there's coming a time, Jesus says, when I'm going to change the whole order of things. 
I will renew even the animals, the predatory animals, so that they'll eat grass. The bear will, <clears throat> the cow will feed with the bear, and the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like a cow. I believe that's literal. I believe in the Garden of Eden there weren't carnivorous animals killing one another. The first thing that was killed was killed by God. It was an animal so that he could take the skin and cover the sin, the nakedness of Adam and Eve. That was the first animal that was killed. And for thousands of years, we had a sacrificial system pointing to a sacrifice that would atone for sin until God sent his Lamb of God, the sinless Lamb of God, who paid the ultimate price, that we would not have to face the wrath of God for our sin, but that God would pour out his wrath for our sin on his son, and that we would be granted substitutionary atonement that the price was paid by a God that loved us so much he sent his son. <clears throat> In Isaiah 11, it says, there will neither harm nor destroy on the holy mountain. There'll be no harm, there'll be no destruction. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. The knowledge of God will be perfect because he will be there. And the people that he's making himself known to are the people that have put their faith into him. And they've trusted him. They have a spiritual relationship with the king of the universe. And they will see him and know what his plan is. And he will execute it for their good. In that day, the root of Jesse, ah, back to Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples of the nations to rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. It didn't say the nation. That's a plural, nations. What do you think that means? That means us, we Gentiles, those of us who put our faith in him along with the Jewish nation who has put their faith in him, will be there. And we will rest in this glorious place that he's going to recreate a new earth. <clears throat> but there appears to be a conflict of what Jesus has to say about peace. How can that be? Well, look at John 14. Let's, let's see who he's talking to in John 14. This is the upper room discourse. In John, you read about this in chapters 14, 15, and 16 is the upper room discourse. And he's telling his disciples whom he's about, this is probably just 12 hours before he goes to the cross. I want you to look at who he's concerned with. He's concerned with the will, I mean the goodwill of his men, of his, of, his, of his disciples. And he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Now there's the clue. <clears throat> Whose peace is it? Well, he's getting ready to go to the cross in 12 hours. He's going to be nailed to a cross. God's going to pour out his wrath on his son in order that he might purchase us, the redeemed who have trusted him. 
But he tells us to guard. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. What happened? They all fled. When he went to the cross, only John was at the foot of the cross, standing by his mother Mary. The rest of them had fled. Peter denied him three times that night. Denied him. Um, you see, they focused on fear, and their peace was gone. But Jesus said, I leave you my peace. But don't let your fears grow bigger than who I am. If you know me, if you have a personal relationship with me, focus on that, and it will give you peace. I will give you that peace. <clears throat> then John 16 John 16 says, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each of you to his own home, and to leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because my Father is with me. You see, Jesus is demonstrating for us what it means not to be alone. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because our God is with us. He's saying, I will be with you. These things I have spoken to you so that, there's the purpose clause, in me you may have peace. Where is peace found? It's found in our Lord and Savior. We must focus on him, how much he loves us, how powerful he is, how wise he is, and how loving he is to, to include us in the family. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. Ha, I've overcome the world. You see, um, we have a prince who's coming that's going to take charge. Verse 25 of 14 says, I have spoken while I was still with you. But the counselor, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you and remind you of all things, of everything that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Um, notice that Jesus is encouraging them. He said, you, you guys, you're going to scatter. And it's going to seem like the end. Everything that you've believed and I've taught you for, for three years is going to come crashing down. You see, they read the scripture in Isaiah and they thought this is for an immediate coming. The first coming would be when he comes and he sets up his kingdom. That's what they all believed. They believed that there would be no suffering Messiah that would come and, is, and, and die on the cross for the penalties of, 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 the, of those that would believe in him. They didn't see that. They didn't want to see that. They wanted to see a savior that would throw off Rome, a political leader. And so they looked at this passage and saw it differently than I hope we see it this morning. They looked at it and said, ah, uh, he's going to throw, overthrow the Romans and we're going to have peace. Uh, the word peace reflects in Hebrew, shalom. At the individual level, peace, that's peace, it's unknown to the unsaved. They don't know what that peace is like. Um, peace dissolves fear, it says in Philippians 4, 7. It rules in our hearts. God's, uh, the hearts of God's people to maintain harmony between us we're to love one another uh, as he loved us. And the greatest reality 
is that peace will be in the Messianic kingdom. And there are a lot of passages that, passages that cover that. So I want to tell you a story, a personal story. I'm going to put, I'm going to put um, a story which will show you something that taught me a great deal. Now, I knew these passages. I'd read them many times. But uh, uh, 30 or 40 years ago, um, a young man, 22 years old, had just gotten out of the University of Florida, was on a business trip with me, and he trusted Jesus Christ, and he was getting married within a month. And uh, shortly after he was married, he led his new wife to Christ. He got on fire for the Lord. He couldn't get enough of the word. Like the deer pants for water, he panted for the word of God. And he grew like a rocket. And uh, he taught men's Bible studies. He became an elder in his church. He and his wife had four children. And uh, when he was 28 years old, uh, he blacked out one day. And uh, they started studying, doing brain scans. And uh, the doctor said, you have a brain tumor. And so 28 years old, his family gathered. We all were waiting in the, in the waiting room. And uh, a friend of ours, both Rick and mine, was the pathologist. His team of pathologists were doing the pathology during the serv uh, surgery. And the phone rang in the waiting room, and it was our friend, uh, Dr. Sloan Leonard, and he said, I just got word from my pathologist that's on duty. Rick's not going to make it. He has a geoblastoma. Now, I don't know what that is, but the doctors say that's, that's bad. If you have a, a brain tumor that's a geoblastoma, that's bad. Well, Rick um, did make it. He made it. He came out, and I took him to the, where they did the radiation. You know, they put your head in a, in a halo ring, and they radiated. And, um, and he survived for 12 years. And people would say, well, the doctors misdiagnosed. It was not a geoblastomy. They would not give praise to God. But it was a geoblastomy. God just gave him 12 more years. That's all. He gave Hezekiah 15 more years. He can heal. He can do anything he wants. But the, the point is, he gave him 12 more years, but it came back. Now listen, this is what he taught me. <clears throat> As it was progressing, and he could no longer get out, and he was homebound, and he was losing his speech, his capability to speech, I called him and went to lunch with him one day. <clears throat> and I, I'll tell you, I was frankly upset. He was the most godly man I knew. Uh, had a great impact on a whole bunch of men in the business community. And as a father and as a husband, he was a role model. <clears throat> and I went to lunch with him, and we were talking, and he said, you know, Ken, he said, God gave me 12 more years. But I think he's taking me home this time. He's going to take me home. And I said, oh, I'm so angry with God. He said, well, I'm not. I said, how can you not be angry? He said, well, he's given me a peace about it. I know that if he takes me home, He's quite capable of taking care of my wife and my four children. <clears throat> Shortly thereafter, he died. <clears throat> and he was right on. The men in his Bible study, within a month, passed the hat. They raised enough money to pay off the mortgage so she didn't have a mortgage. His 38-year-old wife uh, didn't have a mortgage. They raised enough money to pay for the 
Christian school that his children were attending, and all of them were below grade, or in grade school or middle school. They're all young children. They paid off their education so that they could go through. To this day, I believe all of them are believers because of what their father did for them and how much they love him and what he taught them. Rick didn't know that. He didn't know exactly how it would happen, but he knew that God would take care of them. You see, God has a, a special place for widows and orphans. His 38-year-old wife never remarried. She remained single. But God blessed his, his commitment and gave him a peace that I certainly didn't understand. But I've seen it. I, I've learned that that peace comes in this, I don't care what you're walking through, how difficult the situation is, how much calamity there is in your life. His promise for peace is there if you trust him and you know him and you believe him. You don't have to know how it's going to come out. I'll tell you, it'll all come out fine in the end because we win. He wins, and he's going to take us home to be with him. So it, we always know that in the end, we will be with him. So that's what it's like to have the peace that passeth understanding. Some of us get upset if, you know, uh, our college football team doesn't do well. or you know, We get out of focus for the littlest things until you've walked through the valley of the shadow of death. You don't know what it's like to have the peace that passeth understanding. Some of you do, many of you do. Don't worry, worry robs you of your peace. Jesus kept saying, do not worry, do not be afraid. Don't focus on the situation, focus on me. I'm the source of your peace. Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, he gives an example of Matthew 6, 25. It says, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Kay and I, just the other day, saw this huge flock of birds fly over, and this passage popped in my mind. The heavenly Father is responsible. He's going to feed every one of them. He's not only going to feed that flock of birds. He's going to feed every animal on his creation. He provides. He is the provider. He takes care of everything. And he says, they don't build barns. I do it every day. They don't lay up and store up uh, in barns. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Now listen at this. Are you not more in value than they? I tell you how value those of you who have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. In God's eyes, you're the most valuable thing he's purchased because he used the most valuable price to purchase you, the blood of his son. That's how much he loves you. That's how you're worth, that's what you're worth to him. That's how much God loves you. Don't worry. Don't worry. Focus on him. Matthew 6 goes on. So why do you worry about clothing? And they were worried about clothing because in that day their clothing was how they protected themselves from the elements. They didn't go in a wardrobe where they picked out what coats they're going to wear today. They didn't have those kinds of resources. And the food, they didn't have pantries and big refrigerators and a Kroger down the street. They literally lived from day to day. And so they were constantly under pressure. 
But he says, don't worry about clothing. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these lilies. Now if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? That's provide for you. Provide for your necessities. Oh, you of little faith. You see, it's when our faith slips that we start to become worried and we lose our, our faith, I mean our, our peace. The Prince of Peace comes first as the King and then the Lord of Lords. Now we're going to jump to Revelation chapter 19 where Jesus makes his next appearance on earth and um, he's talking to the Apostle John. All the rest of the apostles have been martyred. John's the only one left alive. And Jesus is revealing the future to him. And he's looking and he said, And I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. And the rider, who is called Faithful and True, with justice he judges and makes war. He's coming to put down the rebellion. Um, the wrath of God is going to be poured out on all of those who have cursed him and would not come to him. It tells us in Revelation that even when things got going bad, they gnawed their tongues in pain and cursed God. They would not come to him. He's going to put an end to that rebellion. His eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are uh, many crowns, his authority by all of the crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. And he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. That's the blood of his enemies. And his name is the word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That's Jesus Christ, if you don't know who he's talking about. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, showing purity. There's, there's no sin in heaven. It's pure. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, which is to strike down the nations, those opposing him. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That's what it, Jesus took for us. The fury, the wrath of God Almighty against our sin. He's, he's done that for us. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written on his sash. And it says, King of King and Lord of Lords. And is he ever? Uh, come, Lord Jesus. And how much does he love us? Well, Romans tells us in, in chapter 8, verse 33. Who will bring a charge against those whom the God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Jesus Christ who died. More than that, he was raised to life, is at the right hand of God is also interceding for us. Do you realize we have an advocate? Our advocate is Jesus Christ, the good judge of the universe. The all-knowing, all-powerful judge is interceding. When Satan accuses us of our sin, he's right. But we've been forgiven. We need to confess our sins and restore our relationship. We don't, we don't lose a relationship. We lose fellowship. So we need to keep that intact. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword? There is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Not even yourself. 
If you've truly trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, your Savior, you may not feel like it every day, and you may sin and break relationship with the Father. You moved, He didn't. He didn't move away from you. But if you confess your sin, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that you might walk in fellowship with Him every day and have that peace in your heart. Nothing can separate us. Verse 38 of 8 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, and that includes demons, Satan, any powers in the heavens or on the earth, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You may say, well, wait a minute. He doesn't know what I did after I trusted him as Christ. I was backslidden, and I got into all kinds of sins. Yeah, he knows. He's also paid for it. It says that nothing can separate you from that fellowship and love that he has for you. You cannot increase God's love for you any more than it was the first day you trusted him as Savior. He loved you. He's infinite. He, he's, he does not change. He's immutable. His love does not waver. You're saved. You're saved. Now, I've tried to wrap together a lot of things that are covered in that Isaiah passage from a peace that we can have today and a coming peace for the nation of Israel and a peace for all the world when the King of Kings, Lord of Glory, comes back to rule the earth. But before you leave today, let's close in prayer. And if you have any troubling thoughts in your mind about where you are and your status with the King of Kings and the Lord of Glory and the Prince of Peace, let's pray about that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for it is faithful and true. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has purchased us that put our trust in you with his very blood. How precious is that? How much does he love us to be nailed to a cross that you might pour out your wrath on our sins on him? Thank you for that kind of love. Thank you for that kind of, of assurance. May, Lord, we focus, no matter what we walk through, no matter how deep the valley is, or how many things are going on in our life, may we not be afraid because we've put our faith in you. And if you haven't done that this morning, please, right now, ask the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you for the sins that you've done and trust and receive him as your Lord and Savior. We ask that for his, in his name and for his glory alone. Amen. Thank you. Have a great week. Merry Christmas.